This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit davenanthall.com. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses. Students can simply audit a single class or enroll in a degree program, including subject-specific certificates, PhD supervision, and the flagship MLIT program, which includes pastoral tracks for Baptist, Anglican, and Reformed or Presbyterian ministry. Enroll in classes at any time during the academic year. Knowing that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, Davenant hosts regular residentials at their study center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2024 classes running April to June is now open. Register by March 27th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Spring term classes include Male and Female in Modernity with Alistair Roberts, The Reformation and the Modern World with Michael Lynch, Philosophy as a Way of Life with Joseph Minnick and more. Visit DavenantHall.com to find out more. That's DavenantHall.com. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. This week, Todd, Amy, and Carl reviewed Daniel Block's book, For the Glory of God, Recovering a Biblical Theology of Worship. What is true worship, and what are the roles of God's Word, prayer, and music? Let's join the conversation and find out. Oh, and to keep listening after the podcast to hear how you can enter the drawing for a copy of Block's book. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit. And every once in a while, Carl and Amy and I will actually read a book. And uh, we've come across one that, uh, that we feel good about. Uh, it's a new book by Daniel Block, who is a, a biblical scholar. Uh, teaches at Wheaton. It's called For the Glory of God, Recovering a Biblical Theology of Worship. And we certainly don't have time to give you some sort of a full-orbed review, but we did kind of want to hit on a few of the uh, of, of what were for us some of the high points and, uh, and most helpful things uh, within this good book. Uh, Carl or Amy, what are your thoughts, first of all? I love pretty much anything that Daniel Block writes. Uh, yes, I have to say he's he's not a great theologian in that if you, you read Daniel Block, you're not going to get a lot of, of, of classic theology as such. But he is a man who has a mastery, it seems to me, of the of the biblical text, particularly the Old Testament, which is his speciality. But as this book demonstrates, he's he's quite adept at, at moving from the old to the New Testament. And then being a good contemporary churchman, he's he's quite capable of applying what he knows to the contemporary church situation. So I found this a remarkably thorough study of 
uh, worship from Old Testament to New Testament with contemporary applications, broken down into a series of themes, uh, object of worship, subject of worship, daily life as worship, ordinances as worship, etc., etc. But a very, very thorough, well-written and thought-provoking uh, piece of work. Yeah. I really liked yeah, his, um, the way that he defines worship, and I guess I sh- I'll, I'll read that for you. True worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself in accord with his will. And he begins each chapter with that definition. It's almost mm-hmm. like each chapter could be a mini book study on its mm-hmm. own. But then um, I believe that each chapter really builds on that definition. Yeah, yeah. And the structure of the book, yeah, the structure of the book um, really helps to underline, I, I think, one of the things, one of his central concerns, which is the connection between worship and holiness, or worship and, and ethics. Mm-hmm. This is a major concern of the book, mm-hmm. where he is very careful to make sure that we do not define worship by its ritual practices, although those play a role in our worship, obviously, but that we, uh, Block's concern is that we that we most commonly make the connection between worship and uh, ethical expression. And, um, and I think he does a good job of, of defending that, that thesis. As Carl, Carl, as you mentioned, because it's Daniel Block, it's a book that's heavy in biblical exegesis and, and, um, and therefore valuable for us. Yeah, and very early on in the book, he makes a, a superb connection, I think, between Old Testament worship and and, and the contemporary situation. Mm. On page two, in fact, he says this. In evangelicals' recent fascination with ancient practices and perspectives, we often observe a tendency to accept early worship forms as authoritative, but a decreasing attention to the scriptural theology of worship, driving the reader's attention back to, to worship needs to be first and foremost framed in terms of scriptural patterns, structures, and teaching. Then on page seven, he says this, although most assume that unless the New Testament reiterates notions found in the First Testament, the latter are obsolete, we should probably Mm. assume the opposite. Unless the New Testament expressly declares First Testament notions obsolete, they continue. And I love that because what it does Mm. is he really draws out the historical continuity of the people of God, uh, but Mm. not simply in terms of, of, of covenants, if you like, but also in terms of of worship practices, that he's saying that New Testament worship, contemporary worship, has to stand in some positive relationship of continuity with the worship of God's people in the Old Testament, because you know many elements, many aspects, many uh, uh, of the of the of the fundamental building blocks of worship are not abrogated by the New Testament. They continue yeah. mm-hmm. from the old to the new to the contemporary era, and I think that strikes a a real blow against a pervasive contemporary view that really does often cut Christian worship not simply off from its historical post-apostolic roots, but also from its biblical roots as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, readers who are coming from a, uh, a Reformed uh, perspective or out of a Reformed tradition are going to appreciate uh, the emphasis that, that Block places on the centrality of the word um, in our worship, his his chapter on uh, hearing and proclaiming the scriptures in worship, I thought was excellent and uh, a great corrective. He writes um, on page 190, since the scriptures represent the normative means by which God reveals himself, 
and since they are the only sure foundation of belief and practice acceptable to him, the reading and instruction of the scriptures must be given the highest place in worship. And then on page 170, I, I thought he uh, offers a, a really good um, uh, correction to contemporary mm-hmm. trends, where he says he the diminished place of the scriptures in many evangelical churches today is reflected in one, replacing pulpits that highlight preachers' role as spokespersons for God with nondescript or transparent stands to make, more, to make them more visible, two, drastically reducing or eliminating the reading of scripture and worship, three, replacing sustained exposition of scriptures with short topical homilies, and then four, substituting hymns steeped in the language and theology of scripture with jingles that may borrow from biblical, biblical phrases, but are little more than sound bites empty of biblical meaning. Um, I thought he hit the nail on the head, um, so to speak. Yeah, that's a devastating comment. It actually reminds me of uh, uh, Bob Letham, former OPC yes. colleague of mine now teaching in, in the UK. Bob wrote a book on Eastern Orthodoxy a few years ago in which he made the point that if you went to an Eastern Orthodox service for all of Protestant posturing about the centrality of Scripture, mm-hmm. there's actually more Scripture read in mm. a classic Eastern mm. Orthodox service than in a typical Protestant evangelical service in mm-hmm. North America today. And, yeah. and I think that what uh, Dan Block hits out there is, is precisely that tendency that we can so often honor the word uh, with our lips but our practice really betrays how little centrality and importance is actually ascribed to the written word of God. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did like that chapter on the word too, and I, I love how he connects um, the heart with actions and how we like to try mm-hmm. to divorce that so much. And that, you know, we like to say, well, God is looking at our hearts. But right, that, right. Um, you know, he says God looks at our hearts and our actions, that they right. go together. And that fidelity is actually expressed in righteous living. So I love how he exactly. I'm emphatically throughout the book makes that connection. But um, I was really, I really appreciated his chapter on prayer. And um, he mm. talked about how prayer is a verbal act of faith. Um, just how amazing it is that um, God invites us to pray. Um, he has introduced himself by name to us and so that we can call on him by his name and how personal that is and that he answers our prayers, that he hears our prayers. And we can even, even though we have this reverential awe and that we should keep that when we approach him in prayer, we can also be frank with him about um, our struggles. When you look at the Psalms, so many of them are just full of lamentations and they're serious and even asking God why and how could you let this happen kind of thing. So I really appreciated how um, he just really concentrated on how prayer isn't just about informing God on the list of what, what our needs are, but mm-hmm. that um, it's really a vehicle of humility, he calls it. And I really appreciated yeah. that whole chapter. Yeah. And he brings out nicely as well there the, the importance of public prayer. Uh, I've got a great quotation here. Through public prayer, Mm -hmm. believers express, reinforce, and develop the theology of the church, and they express their oneness with each other and with Christ. At the same time, the medium of prayer offers instructional and inspirational opportunities to be reminded of the grace and glory of God. That's on page 218. It's a great quotation, reminding us of the the doxological and the didactic uh, Mm. importance 
of public prayer. And I was reminded as I was reading that in, you know, in 1849, Samuel Miller's little book, Thoughts on Public Prayer, he laments the fact that seminaries do not instruct ministerial candidates on how to pray in public. And that remains the case That's today. Crazy. And I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's probably rooted in a, a misguided piety of, uh, of spontaneity. Yeah. We could talk about that perhaps yeah. some other time. But the neglect of public prayer is, is really a, a sad weakness, I think, in, in the church today. And, and Bloch points to some nice sources there. He talks about, uh, he does recommend that people pray in public write their prayers out. I regard that as sissy. You, you, if you can't pray in public, <laughs> you shouldn't be a minister, quite frankly. But, uh, to, to, to I think disagree. About <laughs> Well, you're a girl, of course you disagree. You shouldn't be praying in public. You should not be praying in public anyway. So uh, exactly. please listen. Ignore, ignore that comment. Look, look, go and fetch some coffee, will you? We're, we're trying to talk here. So. <laughs> this is what happens, everyone, uh, I think... when you disagree with Carl Truman. <laughs> look. I'm going to throw my toys out of the pram at this point and just keep out of the way. I didn't even hear that. Seriously, uh, (laughs) Dan Blog recommends the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, Valley of Vision, and also the Psalms as as great models for for Christians learning, for for male Christians learning how to pray in public. (laughs) I'm only joking, Amy. Sometimes, and that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) So. Anyway, Todd, do you want to um, dig me out of this hole here? I feel I'm going to be in serious yeah, trouble in a minute. Carl, Carl got himself <laughs> in trouble for suggesting that only men are allowed to approach God in prayer. Something like that. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, uh, something like that. Um, I, uh, you know, he makes some, some, I think, really helpful comments about church architecture. How oftentimes um, in the contemporary church it's been set up like a theater with, with worship being done by the professionals and professional musicians. And he said some things that I think very much ring true for some of my own experience in the past where um, some of the rhythms and musical accompaniment become so professionalized and in some cases so complex that people just stop singing mm-hmm. and instead watch the show that's going on because that's what's being uh, communicated. He makes a, a great comment, which is, I think, a very um, timely uh, rebuke, really, for the church today on page 236 in his chapter on music, where he says, too often in worship wars, pragmatism and personal taste, rather than biblical perspectives or theology, drive the discussion, and music in worship is often designed to satisfy those whose worship is unacceptable to God. That's strong, but it's true. Devastating. Devastating. Yeah. Yeah. So he goes on to just give, I I think, some some very helpful instruction on, um, on... on what ought to characterize evangelical worship, Christian worship in our time. Carl, you mentioned something at the very beginning, which I, I would just concur as a strength of the book, which is uh, because it's Daniel Block, lots of, of really strong, um, careful biblical exegesis. But each chapter, he spends quite a bit of time in, in practical application. And, and Block is, is uh, very open about the fact that he is uh, Baptist, so some of his application comes from a Baptistic perspective. Um, that said, if you are reformed, there's much good in the application as well for you. Um, and so don't, uh, don't discount it simply because, uh, he is writing from a Baptist perspective. Mm. Well, one thing I would add, Todd, is that this book is an incredibly rich 
uh, and deep book. There's no way we can do anything other than really scratch the surface in, in a short podcast. So what we're planning to do is to continue the discussion on the mortification of spin blog. So any listeners interested in, in hearing further thoughts on this book, further discussion, please go to the mortification of spin blog where you'll find the three of us engaging further and in more depth and detail on aspects of the book. Thank you all for joining us and we will be with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. Don't forget to visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you can enter to win a copy of Daniel Block's book, For the Glory of God, Recovering a Biblical Theology of Worship. Spin the wheel and see if you've won a free copy. Next week on The Mortification of Spin. You don't get to decide how you're discipled. God's Word, Scripture, sets the terms of your discipleship, defines who you are and what you need. As if instruction in God's authoritative and sufficient Word is not the practical. Church discipline properly exercised is extraordinary, and you really do have to lean on the Holy Spirit and the power of God's Word and what it says to do. And we'll also find out, can Carl and Todd embrace vulnerability? Oh, we can certainly be vulnerable. We have to be vulnerable. That's next week on Mortification of Spin. Don't forget to visit mortificationofspin.org to enter the book drawing, and we'll talk with you next week. Well, regular listeners will know that a couple of weeks ago we, we almost went off the air because of the Zinfandelgate scandal when it emerged that Mike Horton actually drinks drinks that are coloured pink. Uh, well, something much worse and much closer to home has erupted. Uh, I received a, a very disturbing report last Friday that uh, a gentleman was seen going into Amy Bird's house carrying a six-pack of, of Miller Genuine Draft. Can you believe that? Miller Genuine Draft. And I think, you know, as this person is, is an honorary guy, we need to get to the bottom of this. You know, guys don't I, I drink agree. MGD as far as I know. I, I agree. <laughs> My husband walked in with MGD for the weekend for us to stain the deck together. <laughs> you, you were going to stain the deck with MGD? That's, that's <laughs> I, I guess that wasn't that proper That might be what English, it's good for. It? Yeah. See what happens when you drink bad beers?